This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. Please be seated. I was uh, talking to another uh, pastor a few weeks ago, and we were commenting about how inadequate we were finding our pastoral training to be in the realm of suffering and trials and pain. And we were discussing the fact that we were not taught how to teach a biblical framework on trials and sufferings, nor were we shown how to enter into our own testings, uh, the testings of our lives, and we certainly were not trained in how to pastor uh, our people, our flock, uh, through the hardships and the disappointments of life. And yet, we have found it to be amazing as we have committed ourselves to preaching through books of the Bible. We have found it to be amazing that, like, every third passage and every third sermon is about hardship. And at least a third of pastoral ministry is, is leading the flock to live faithfully through trials. And so, this morning, Yet another sermon on trusting God in the midst of real life. Now, the truth is this. I was trained uh, in pastoral ministry as if the Bible presented the Christian life this way. It's the American dream, okay? Life 
is like living in Hawaii with beautiful mountains and gorgeous beaches and grass skirts. And every now and then in the Christian life, somebody's going to pull a muscle while golfing. Somebody's going to get sunburned, falling asleep in the sun. Somebody is going to get stung by a jellyfish while surfing. But friends, the, the, the picture of life given in the Bible actually is this, that Christian life is a wilderness wandering where you occasionally bump into an oasis. The life we live as Christians, the path we walk, is pictured in our section that we're studying in Exodus. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. The rest of the Bible understands Exodus as a picture and a pattern and a paradigm for our Christianity. So, for example, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapters 3 and 4, he, he teaches uh, some complex teaching. But what is, uh, what is unmistakable about what he teaches is that Jesus is the new and ultimate Moses. That the church is the new and ultimate Israel and that our life until we get to heaven is the new and ultimate wilderness experience. And so Exodus is the picture. It's the paradigm for our Christian walk. If you think about the whole story of Exodus, this will begin to make sense. Uh, We have been redeemed. We have been rescued. We have been delivered from slavery. And so we've been purchased. We've been taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. And, And further, just like the Israelites, we are heading towards the ultimate destination, but we have not yet Arrived, And our life in between, the Bible says, is more like a wilderness and less like a vacation. And so we've entered into this section uh, that mirrors our life now, 1522, let's say through uh, the end of chapter 17. And in this section, Moses is going to put together four stories in a row where the Israelites come up against difficulty and hardship and less than optimal circumstances. Story one and story three, the text for us today involves a critical need for water twice. Story two involves a critical and urgent need for food. Story four is God's people being attacked by the sinful enemy. And these stories are written in a way by Moses so that we can learn how to walk through hardships and trials and testings in life. So we're going to look at these two stories and we're going to see three things. We're going to see the Lord who tests. We're going to see the temptation to test the Lord. And we're going to see the Lord in the tests. All right, so the first thing uh, that we need to see about hardships in the wilderness is that God is the Lord who tests. Listen again to the end of verse 25. And there he tested them. In other words, the hardships of 22 and 23 are directly attributed uh, to to the Lord. And it's called a test or a trial or a proving for Israel. God is in complete control. And he leads the Israelites into a life and death circumstance in need of clean, life-giving water. In verse 22, if you look there, Moses, as God's representative, made them leave the ample water of the Red Sea, indicating they weren't interested in going. It literally says he pulled them into the wilderness of shore. After three days of being led by the Lord through Moses, they had not come across any water. Presumably, whatever water they captured at the Red Sea is either gone or very close to being gone. Finally, in the distance, they either see water or they hear the news of water. And if they're anything like me at that point, if they had any water left, they drank it. They race to the waters of Marah and find that the waters of Marah are bitter. And Moses is saying God added to the test. Not simply patiently trusting him to provide on his schedule and in his way, but also testing them and learning how to deal with delirious disappointment. 
Of course, there's nothing wrong with their question, what shall we drink, verse 24, but the people sinned and they failed the test when they grumbled against Moses. Again, verse 24, but look at how God responded to their failure in the test. Verse 25, Moses cries to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it in the water and the water became sweet. Yet another miraculous sign unceremoniously described in a half of a verse. So God turned this bitter, uh, uh, dead water into something that tasted like Kool-Aid or Propel, depending on if you're a child or an adult. And the Propel did not have anything in it that might cause cancer later. It's just good, clean, refreshing Propel, okay? And then finally, the point of the testing is made clear. Verse 25 and 26, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I'm the Lord, your healer. And here's the point. Here's God's intention the entire time. It was not some sort of pass-fail on some sort of cosmic FCAT or SAT. His intention the entire time was to test them and teach them something new about himself. He uses the occasion of testing failing blessing for the purpose of teaching. The text shows us this. So when the Lord tests his people, it's about growing and learning, not passing and failing. It's not about whether or not God's going to keep them or abandon them. It's about God developing them and taking them into a more obedient and trusting position. Just to make sure you get the point, Moses said, okay, after teaching them, the Lord took them to Elam, verse 27. There was ample water and plenty of shade. 12 and 70 are numbers of completion in the Hebrew uh, language. Moses is saying he took them to a place of abundance, even though they failed the test. And so in our wilderness wanderings through life, we must learn to deal with the fact that the Lord likes to test his people. He hasn't abandoned us, nor has he lost control when things get hard. The Lord tests us by leading us into circumstances that are hard or less than optimal or less than sufficient by our standards. He leads us into those places that are downright scary and disorienting. And the Lord leads us in this way so that he might call us into a greater position of faith and trust, endurance and obedience so that we might experience and so that we might uh, enjoy uh, a a relationship with him that is superior to what we've experienced with him so far. In 1 Peter 4, we read this. It's New Testament. It's Peter. He's an apostle. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, first, don't be shocked by the wilderness reality of your life. And then he, and then he says, second, that trial that tests It's given an adjective, and the adjective is this. It's fiery. It's literally the word for purify and refine, most often used in the Greek language for for gold being purified by fire. And so he's saying God's not shocked by this test, and neither should you be. And he's saying it's ultimately for your good. It's it's ultimately uh, to give you a more pure faith. It's ultimately uh, to give you more of God and, and, and more freedom from the circumstances of life. I've told you this story before. I think it's worth repeating here. A man who mentored me for years was 16 years old, and he asked his mom for money. He wanted to go to the movies with his friend, and she said no. 
And so the 16-year-old walks to his room he, in a huff, and, and he doesn't realize that his dad was in the adjacent room, and his dad overheard the entire conversation. And so as his dad goes out into the field to do, to do chores, his dad empties his pocket on the counter and made sure that a $10 bill was visible for anyone who might just happen to walk by. When the 16-year-old returned from the movies, his dad awoke from sleeping on the couch and said, Hey, where you been, son? Oh, the movies. What'd you see? This or that? Was it good? Did you have fun? Oh, it was, it was great. Me and my friends, we had a great time. Oh, son, I'm so glad you had such a good time. The 16-year-old walks down the hall. Whew, glad I got past that. His dad said right before he walks into his room, son, yeah, dad? We'll discuss in the morning how you funded your wonderful little night with your friends. The 16-year-old goes in the room, and he stands with his back against the door, and he thinks for a second, and he goes back out in the living room, and he says, Dad, yeah? Can we talk about that right now? Sure. One line. Son, I knew you were a thief, but you didn't. I love you, son. Good night. Are we saying that God took the Israelites into the wilderness and led them on a path without water and then when thirsty led them to bitter water? Are we saying um, that God led them into a life and death situation in order to teach them, prove them, reprove and improve them? Absolutely. That's exactly what we're saying. He's the Lord who tests. But to be very clear, God did not tempt them. He tested them. God did not cause them to sin, they sinned. God was not responsible for their failure and their grumbling, but he took responsibility for them and gave them grace, teaching, and circumstantial blessings at Elam. You see, when we're in circumstances that are hard or less than optimal or even life and death, we have to know this, the Lord tests his people to grow them, not to fail them, but the Lord does not tempt his people. This is a mysterious element, but I have to be clear on what the Bible says so that we can be equipped as much as possible for the testings that lie ahead. James says in chapter 1, God is not tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Yet in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Jesus was famously tempted, and the Bible says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the devil. So God led him to the test and to the temptation, but Satan tempted him there, not God. Jesus passed the test being full of the Holy Ghost, which helps us understand 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says this about us in the test. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always and also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray regularly, if not daily. Teaches us to pray in his prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. It's a prayer, which means God can lead us into temptation, but he doesn't tempt us in that trial. And the prayer is this. It's not so much, God, don't take me into the test, but it says when I'm in the test, don't let me fall to temptation. And the reason you know that that's Jesus' intention is because the next line in the Lord's Prayer is, deliver us from the evil one. 
I know it's mysterious. I know it's hard to get all of our minds around it. I know if we press into it, we probably make error. But we have to understand, when we understand that he is the Lord who tests, that he does not tempt. And he always provides a way out. So first, in the hardships of the wilderness life, we're going to learn from our text that the Lord is the one who tests. But if you keep going in this section of Exodus, you're going to also see uh, uh, more times of testing. And you're going to see that we're tempted with the temptation to test the Lord. So it's one thing to fail God's test, to grumble and complain and become impatient. It's another thing altogether to turn the table and put God to the test. Okay, so chapter 16, story two, the story for next week is God testing the Israelites uh, through a hard circumstance of needing food. And then you pick back up now in the second half of chapter 17, verse one, story three, and it says this, according to the commandment of the Lord, Israel, okay, God's in control. Israel camped at Rephidim. God led them to the place where there was no water for them to drink. He's testing his people again. In addition to grumbling, verse 3, the Israelites added their rebellion, the testing of the Lord, verse 2. And this is how they tested him. Beginning of verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses and demanded, give us water to drink. Now, the shock of verse 2 is lost in our translations, but Moses did not miss it. At the end of verse 2, Moses goes, why? Why do you quarrel with me? And quarrel is a technical term for bringing a lawsuit. The elders of Israel approach Moses and they say, we're going to sue you. We're going to take you to court. And you can get out of it by giving us water. And you know it's a lawsuit because if you go down to verse 4, look at what Moses says to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. I mean, it almost comes out of nowhere unless you understand the context. But stoning in the ancient world was a common practice when someone's crime was seen as a capital offense against community. In fact, you see that in verse 3. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses says at the end of verse 2, why do you bring suit against me? And further, why do you test the Lord? Now, I have a biblical responsibility to tell you that this is uh, taking matters up a notch. It's taking matters up a significant notch. In Numbers chapter 14, the fourth book of the Bible, about two years after this event, God tells Moses, none of the men, none of the men who were 20 years old or older when we crossed the Red Sea, none of those men except for Caleb uh, uh, Caleb and Joshua can go into the promised land. And listen to why God says they can't go in. They saw my glory and my signs in Egypt. They saw my glory and my signs in the wilderness, and yet they put me to the test ten times. That's what he says. I guess you get nine lives. It's a bad joke. (laughs) They put me to the test ten times and have not grown in obeying my voice. In other words... Had the Israelites only failed God's tests and grown through them, becoming more obedient, they would have entered the promised land and not died in the wilderness in shame. But because they kept testing God, because they did not become obedient to God, they forfeited the blessing of entering into the land of Canaan. They did not forfeit the blessing of salvation They did not forfeit the blessing of being in God's presence and being his people. They did not forfeit the blessing of heaven one day. But the blessing of God in their earthly existence was forfeited. 
not because they failed one of God's tests, but they kept testing God when he would test them. What does it look like to test God when he's testing you? It it takes it up a notch. We might want to think about this. Testing God is an attempt to force his hand to get what you want. God, if you're really among us, you'll you'll either give us water or we're going to kill Moses. Putting God to the test is going from a position of being taught uh, to the position of teacher. Putting God to the test is going from being on trial to putting God on trial. Uh, Putting God to the test is going from Daniel-san to Mr. Miyagi in Karate Kid. Testing God when he's testing you is to try and manipulate him, to be demanding with him, to intentionally suspend faith and worship and joy and obedience until he shapes up and begins to behave like you want him to. Putting God to the test can look like this, can look like this in our lives for years. You experience the spiritual blessings and even circumstantial blessings of God in the midst of a trial or a test, maybe even a severe test. We begin to believe that if he exists, he doesn't care about us. Failing God's test, step one, is to be grumpy and joyless in a hard marriage. Putting God to the test is this. I know God hates divorce, and I know that I have no biblical right to get divorced, but I can't handle my spouse anymore, and I'm going to get divorced. After all, God's a God of grace, right? Failing his test may look like finding yourself in in the presence of something you're addicted to or have been addicted to and losing self-control in a weak moment. Putting God to the test is walking into the environment knowing full well what you're doing. Further, it's that moment when God is saying, flee, 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 take the escape I'm giving you, run, and choosing to not do so. Essentially saying to the Spirit of God, shut up, leave me alone. Failing his test is to be depressed and to think your life is less valuable than your married friend. Putting God to the test is, I really want to be married Even though God's word says it's unlawful to marry an unbeliever, I'm going to date one and maybe fall in love one and and maybe marry one. Because first of all, God wants me to be happy. And second of all, he can convert them if he wants to. Failing God's test is to be discontent with what we have in terms of money. Putting God to the test is building debt and presuming or almost forcing God to provide for us in ways he hasn't in the past commercial for next week. We're actually going to learn in chapter 16 that God not only tests us by by giving us less than what we think we need, he also tests us by giving us access to more than we need. Failing the test is to anxiously not trust God to provide food for tomorrow. Putting God to the test is coming to the realization that Jesus meant it when he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth and doing it anyway. Rue and I, Rue's our pastor of leadership development, we were talking this week about how hard it is to say exactly what testing God is and how to clearly differentiate it uh, from failing God's original test. And of course, I think it's a continuum. I think it's a progression. Every time uh, we test God, we first failed his test, but we don't always put God to the test when we fail his test for us. But putting God to the test is one of those things you know you've done after you've done it. 
is one of those things you can see and sense in your friends while they're doing it. But describing it in a sermon like this is hard to do at times. And remember, the loss is this. It's blessings, the blessings of God in our earthly existence. It's the lost opportunity of growth. It's the lost opportunity of God's blessing and his blessings being according to his definition and not ours. I'll illustrate it this way, true story. A few months ago, I was catching up with a friend from a previous life, from another context. And he was telling me about his life and he was talking about God's grace in his life and how how God was growing him at that time and how he was increasingly experiencing the peace of God. But at the same time, he was confessing, not his words, mine, confessing how he would put uh, God to the test in the past. And he was lamenting and mourning uh, the reality of all that he had lost in doing so. He had a hard marriage. He was married to a hard woman. He knew he had no right to leave her. He willfully chose to walk away instead. He thought, the kids are young. I'll see him enough here and there. He said, I want to go golfing. I want to spend my money how I want to spend my money. I'd like to spend time with women, nice and kind women. Even though the brothers and the sisters in his church begged him to not divorce, he did. And this is what he said to me. As I sit all alone in my one-bedroom apartment, I know my kids are playing with their stepdad. While I thought I'd have more money, I actually have less. While I thought women would flock to me and want to spend time with me, I'm alone and I feel lonely all the time. While God is meeting me here and giving me grace and healing me, and while God is growing me now, I lost forever and will forever be behind because I lost the chance to grow through that trial. That's what we mean by It's one thing to fail the test. It's another thing altogether to put God to the test. Finally, the Lord in the test. So in our text, Moses in verse 4 asks God, what shall I do with these people? These distrusting, rebellious, insidious people. These people who you are testing. God Almighty, what shall I do with them? How will God respond? Okay, When he is put to the test by his manipulative people, how will he respond? Pick up in verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which he struck the Nile, and go. So imagine the scene. I know you've read the story. I know we just read the text. But if you can, suspend your understanding of the text thus far and just imagine the scene. Okay? Undoubtedly, the people had sent elders to Moses to, to sue him and, and to demand water. And so Moses, by God's direction, he grabs the staff and he approaches the people in order to pass by the people. But they don't know that. And so as he comes towards them, I think a few of them pass out right there. The staff, the rod, and almost... All ancient cultures symbolize divine justice and divine wrath. So, for example, the staff in Moses' hand is the instrument used by God in striking the Nile when he struck the Egyptians because they struck his Israelites. But Moses is carrying the staff, so he's not on trial. He's presiding over the trial. Some of the people had to have thought, okay, we went too far. Now we've done it. And shockingly, Moses just walks right on by. And he leads away from the camp some of the elders of Israel. And I think some of the, elder, some of the elders of Israel are like, oh, nuts. Oh, my. 
We've done it now. Because when God develops his law further, he says, take them outside the camp to stone them. But little do they know at this point, they're not, they're, they're not the defendants. They're witnesses. And then God directs Moses. He says, walk to Horeb. It's another name for Mount Sinai. And God says, Moses, go to the rock at Horeb and strike the rock. And yet again, God says, I'm going to provide water and life from the most unlikely place, from a boulder in high terrain. And he says, I want the people to drink and I want the people to live. So how does God respond to his disrespectful, rebellious, insidious people? Grace, mercy, water, life. But even more stunning than that, I think more stunning than the fact that God didn't strike the Israelites. In verse 6, God says to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you. Now again, this is language of a judicial proceeding. It's the language of the inferior standing in front of the superior. God saying, I will be inferior. I will stand before you in this moment as superior. God says, take my staff. Take my rod of judgment. I'm going to stand before you as the one on trial. Look at what the text clearly says. I'll stand before you there on that rock. And you shall strike the rock. How does God respond to his snot-nosed bratty people? Who said, God should stand trial over the hard circumstances of my life. In grace... And mercy and love, he says, okay, I will. But I'm not standing trial over the circumstances of your life. I'm standing trial because you sinned and demanding that I stand trial. Big difference. Now, of course, the person and the work of Jesus Christ permeates these stories. The stories ultimately foreshadow and point to Jesus and the cross. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about how the church is uh, experiencing the exodus all over again. And he says that the rock from which they drank was Jesus. If you're wondering, how could God be just and holy and also let these sinners keep living? Or further, if you're wondering, how can God be just and holy and allow me to keep living? I alluded to the fact earlier that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. He was led by the Holy Spirit, tempted by Satan. Matthew 4, Luke 4 in the New Testament tells us this story. After fasting, 40 days in the wilderness, being weak and hungry and vulnerable and susceptible more so than we've ever been in our flesh, Satan personally shows up and he tempts Jesus to sin. And, and, and in that testing that is orchestrated by God, Satan, his first temptation for Jesus was to turn rocks into bread. Basically, don't, don't wait for God's timing on your circumstances anymore. Jesus says, no thanks. My food is every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. So Satan, then he takes Jesus, uh, God's word and he begins to twist them. And, and so he takes Jesus to the top of the temple mount and he takes him to the, the pinnacle of the temple and he says, jump. God has promised to not let your foot strike the ground and he has promised to send angels to catch you, quoting God's scripture out of context. And Jesus, in, in response to this, quotes Deuteronomy six sixteen: You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not take over. You shall not manipulate. You shall not force him to act. 
He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. He quotes the first half of the verse. Listen to the rest of that verse in Deuteronomy 6.16. This is Moses writing to the wilderness generation. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Chapter 17, verse 7 of our text. What's the point? Jesus in the wilderness is succeeding where Israel failed. He does not fall to the temptation in the text. He does not put God to the test. Yet just like the rock at Horeb on the cross, Jesus is struck. Hanging in naked shame, he cries out, I thirst. He does not get water in life. He does not get water in life so that you and I can have water in life by grace through him. How can it be that God can bless us and teach us even when we fail the test? Because the one who, failed, who never, ever failed was struck in our place. How can it be when, God, uh, when we choose to put God to the test, that the staff of God goes past us and does not strike us? Because the one who never tested God was struck in our place. I don't know where you're at in the pilgrimage. I have no idea where you are in between the crossing of the Red Sea and the entrance into the promised land. But but this text is begging for us to trust God. Trust his heart. Trust his plan. Look for hope and life in him and not in our circumstances. Maybe you're at an oasis. Maybe you happened to find Elam for a day or a week or a year. And this text is saying, don't get too comfortable. You're not home yet. Maybe, though, you're at another severe testing. And maybe you can feel the temptation of Satan either to grumble and, and, and to, to be discontent and to harumph around. Or maybe to turn the, t- the tables on God and to test him. And this text is begging us, humbly trust God, obey his teachings and obey his commands. And when we say, how can I trust him? How can I know he's trustworthy? Exodus keeps pointing to the cross and says, that's how. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in our insidious rebellion and disrespect and distrust, that even in that place, you are grace and mercy, water and life. Jesus, we are thankful to you that you so beautifully lived life. You were tempted with everything we've been tempted with, yet you did not sin. Uh, You were tempted to test the Lord in ways we cannot even fathom, and yet you stayed humble and dependent upon the Lord. We thank you for your obedience and your life and your willingness to die for us, the insidious, rebellious people who are so thick-skulled. Jesus, I need you more than I ever have before. I see how so much of my life is just built on presumption of your grace and how little I take your word seriously. Would you please forgive us? Would you please change us? Would you please grow us into the men and women you want us to be that we might experience your blessing and your freedom and your joy and relationship with you and others like never before. Thank you so much for being our teacher. Thank you so much for being our counselor and our guide. Would you lead us? 